The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. One of the biggest promises of the Johnson government was to level up. And it's the mission of this government to unite and level up across the whole UK. Not just because that is morally right, but because if we fail, then we are simply squandering vast reserves of human capital. People in the poorer regions of Britain should have the same opportunity as those in the wealthy areas, Boris said, and it was for a while a policy that was widely promoted by those who were at the time in the Cabinet, like Michael Gove, here on Channel 4 News. Because we recognise that ultimately our job is to make sure that wherever you grow up in this country, you should have a chance to succeed, and whatever your definition of success is, it shouldn't be defined by someone else, you have the chance to achieve fulfilment. But has that commitment gone as Boris gets ready to leave number 10? Last week, the prospective Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was talking, in a recording made by the New Statesman, about how, in his mind, Tunbridge Wells needs money more than the deprived urban areas. I managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Then uh, they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. So shifting money from low-income inner cities to commuting towns in the home counties, is that levelling up Rishi style? Or was the whole thing a con job on the British electorate? Did the government have any real intention to level up? Or is it just slow to be realised? And if there's no clear sign of progress, will those red wall seats quickly revert to Labour? This week, we look at levelling up. Level up. Levelling up. Level up. The level up. Level up. Level up. Terrific. Brilliant. Levelling up. Levels up. (laughs) How many times have you got to say this? (laughs) The why. Curve. So saying it is one thing, but actually doing it is quite another. And I mean, this week we're going to look at what is going on with levelling up. Has anything? Well, that shouldn't take long, then, should it? Well, you're very cynical about this. Maybe there are things because it doesn't. It just don't you just get the sense that this was a yes? Let's grab some red wall seats. Let's make it sound all right. We don't need to worry about the detail, just as we didn't need to worry about the detail of Brexit. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. But the idea that actually there are parts of the country that are pretty neglected. I mean, that's not yeah, controversial. Of course, though, no. Uh, there are, you know, you look at London and you look at certainly parts of the north where clearly money hasn't been going in. So the idea of levelling up, whatever, I have to call it levelling up, n- that's what it is, is not a bad one. The of question, course it's not. The question the is, question how is, do you do it? And has anything been done? Right. And is the government committed to it? That's the question. So when you've got Rishi Sunak standing in the centre of Tambridge Wells, not an urban uh, deprived area. He's playing to a particular electorate for a particular purpose. I mean, seriously. You know, the, 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 um, if you look at the average household income in Tunbridge Wells, actually, yeah. I was quite surprised. It's only £35,000, but that is mm. 50%. But that's after housing costs have been taken out, which yeah. obviously going to be extraordinarily large there. But still 50% more than Tower Hamlets, twice what they've got to live off in Middlesbrough, for example. And there he is saying, yeah. oh, you know, we're going to give you money. Well, listen, I mean, you know, Liz Truss is talking about all kinds of things. I mean, tax cuts really are not going to help many people in that part of the world. As many people have pointed out, yeah. the whole issue is not uh, your income, but... Uh, but whether you're getting any kind of additional support. Mm. So I think I think the point in all this, that's electioneering. That's to do with a Tory electorate. But the electing. problem is as old as the hills, isn't it? You know, and no one's ever had a, a, an answer to it. When you've got a, a country like the UK where so much wealth and capital is aggregated in the southeast, and it's the same in every other country, but we've got it bad well, because we've got because we've got such a major centre yeah, in London. Yeah, but you look London. at the US, for example. And the US is, is, is by no means a paragon in any of this, but no. there are areas like, for example, in, in the south, in Georgia, Atlanta, for example, 
historically pretty deprived. And But in the past 10 years, 20 years, you've got some of the big tech companies moving in there, and they draw in money. They draw in all kinds of things. Mm. doesn't spread throughout the state, but it does exist. But they don't have. There's, I mean, okay, New York is a big city, but it doesn't have the same dominance that London's got. If you look at the size of the country, and it's geographically spread as well, so, so that helps. But the population mm. is more uh, geographically spread. You're talking about far bigger areas, whereas here, you know, companies going to go, look, we need to be close to other companies so that we can operate. They're all in the southeast. Let's settle in yeah, the you, southeast. You can't How do apply you the that? same solutions everywhere. It's true. But I think there are mechanisms. There are ways that things can be done. Funds can be directed. And that's what needs to go on. The question, has it gone? Well, let's let's bring in Paul Swinney at the point. He's, he knows a lot about this. He's a director of research at the Centre for Cities, and he joins us now. So, Paul, I mean, do you think that the government uh, ever had any intention to pursue this levelling up strategy or was it and did they have a plan I mean we've seen white papers I mean there's been discussion about it but have they ever been serious about this because this is a problem that has been in Britain for decades hasn't it well it certainly is not something new I mean it's been at least 100 years in the making and policies try to do something about this for at least 90 years so that the Mm. um, the existing government as it still stands uh if they try to do something about it, they're not the first government to try and do this. So that tells us that it needs something which is very big, very long term, something that is very planned and strategic in its approach. Now, I don't think the existing government, um, uh, I don't think they were being totally disingenuous in terms of saying they wanted to do something about it. I do think that they, they did want to do it. I think they recognised that there was a political win in that. I think they also recognised that the longer that they could talk about levelling up without actually doing anything around it meant that you weren't going to annoy anybody because when you start to make a strategy, you've got to um, you've got to make decisions. And that, that favours some people or some parts of the country and it ultimately does create losers within that as well. And, and clearly, politically, that's not going to play out um, very well for them. But in fairness, I think you know, after you know, two and a half years of saying the term levelling up about a gazillion times, they did actually come up with a white paper you know, did set out in broad terms what it was that they, they wanted to do. So I think that was, um, there was some credit to be given there. But of course, the problem is that not only does it take, you know, over two years just to set out what it is they're going to talk about, since the white paper was published in February, then didn't do anything about it. Now, so, so nothing, nothing is actually, I mean, to say straight away, I mean, see, it takes longer than two and a half years, as you say. So nothing actually concrete has happened in the way of improving, for example, cities in the north as part of this plan. We can say that literally nothing has happened. I think you could point to probably a handful of policies that the, uh, that, uh, the government might say that they've tried to, to do, some of which was announced before the white paper. You've got some good things like um, devolved transport budget for some of the big cities. That's to be welcome. Um, very recently, we've just had a, a devolution deal for York and North Yorkshire, which is one of a great deal number of uh, devolution deals that we'll need to see. Um, but in the context of, you know, you could put names to say five or six very or fairly small things. In the context of what it is the levelling up white paper sets out, which wasn't especially ambitious, um, it isn't a very, it isn't a great deal in the context of actually the scale of the challenge, which is absolutely ginormous. Um, you know, yeah. it's a drop in the ocean in terms of actually policy action compared to how much we heard the word or the phrase levelling up uttered by politicians. Well, in that white paper, it says there are six forms of capital which provide the virtuous circle of agglomeration. 
Mm. Uh, I thought you'd like to know that. So they are physical capital, so infrastructure, housing, stuff like that. Human capital, so skills, health, the experience of the workforce. Intangible capital, which is innovation and ideas. Financial capital, so resourcing uh, resources that are supporting the financing of companies. That's the tough one. Uh, social capital, so the strength of communities, relationships, trust, and institutional capital, so local leadership, capacity, and capability. That's how, how ginormous this is. It, it is a steep climb to do, you know, to make uh, inroads on one or two of those. But if you want to have all of them, so you get the virtuous circle of agglomeration, I'll say it again. Yeah, you like uh, that, that one. That is, that is a massive job, isn't it? A massive undertaking. It's ginormous. Uh, I love the word agglomeration too, and I don't get to say it very often, so I'm absolutely delighted that, that on, you are. You can have it again. I've said it, I've, I've said it twice. You can have another day. Go on. <laughs> agglomeration. I love that word. But, I mean, yes, it, it's massive. And if you look at you know, the German experience in this is quite instructive. You know, it's not to say that the Germans got everything right or we would follow exactly the same uh, same path. But if you look at what they did when they were bringing north and sorry north and south, uh, east and west back together, um, they, it was uh, at least twenty years in the making. Actually, probably much longer, and it's it's ongoing um, commitment from politicians of all sides that we're going to do something. It's a large program, and the estimates that's put it around about so far two trillion euros that's been spent on bringing those uh, those two sides of the country back together. The things that have been um, suggested so far by the government, and certainly the things, the very scant amount of policy that has actually been put into action by uh, by the UK government, comes nowhere near that. Both in terms of timescales and in terms of money that sits behind it. And now you again, have to say, quick, if you go to Germany, uh, you know Magdeburg or Leipzig or places formerly in the East. I mean, they're, they're better for sure, but they are not. You know, there are still Aussies and Wessies in Germany, and you know that exactly. And this is it. You know, the, despite the the time and the, the money that's being spent, they are still some distance away from actually leveling up east and west there and it, again it, it just under, underscores how big this challenge is not only in the german instance but in the uk instance too so are things getting better in the north or are they and it's not just the north obviously i mean wales there's the midlands i mean even the parts of inner city london let's face exactly it. yeah uh, there's there's lots of parts of the country which have fallen behind but are uh, you know over the decades have things been improving or have they been getting worse they, so the gap certainly has not been closing. In fact, I think you know even if you set aside the most the more recent turbulence, I think that gap is has probably been uh, getting wider. But there's some nuance that sits within that. So if you look at you know a, a broad definition of say Greater Southeast of of England v the rest of the UK, then you know, London sitting at the heart of the Greater Southeast has meant that uh, I think those two regions have pulled apart, continue to pull apart over the last twenty or thirty years or so. If you look in terms of um, of perhaps what's going on elsewhere in the UK, though, what you tend to see is that you've got places like a Wakefield, for example, where you know hit very hard by deindustrialisation, de- especially around mining, that have seen actually quite a strong bounce back from a jobs perspective. So the number of jobs that are in Wakefield today is, is higher than what it was, you know, in the the seventies or eighties. So what sorts of what sorts of jobs? What's what's driving growth in Wakefield? But, but this is exactly the issue because the types of jobs that have then come in to replace the the mining jobs lost have been um, have been fairly um, uh, low skilled or low cognitive skill based. So you're talking a lot around yeah. uh, around distribution centres, um, for example, uh, pubs, other sort of lower skilled manufacturing activities, and then complemented by an expanding public sector. So what you've got in a place like Wakefield is it's, it's, it's replicated its economy, we would say. It's gone from one set of, of lower-skilled jobs to another set of low-skilled low jobs. 
So the answer then maybe is to go, it's the high, so the, you know, the information economy, which we talked about, the, the, the tech economy, that locating to those sort of places um, the, the, would actually make a big difference. That would be a, a virtuous circle. That would be bringing the, the net income locally up much higher. That's a possibility. It might be a virtuous circle, but has it got the agglomeration? Ah, uh, there's a question. Now. But, but I mean, if, you, if they go there, I mean, it is a fair point. If they go there because there's cheap labour, uh, you haven't got everything else that, that's well, you, what you need is cheap, educated labour. You want, you want, you've got to have people who can do that. And so, is education the answer then, well, Paul? In some way, yeah. Ways? I mean, education is is central to all of this. I think we hear a lot of a lot of discussion about transport, and particularly transport between cities. But actually, you know, transport is not a not a the number one problem in a lot of parts of the north. Actually, transport and congestion is a big issue in London. And there's an argument we could actually spend more money on transport uh, in London while, while not spending necessarily more elsewhere if we would actually spend more on skills. So in the northeast, for example, the you know, so pub- private transport at the very least actually is pretty good. Um, public transport is not very good, but that's because it's a very low density economy. Things are very spread out because it's actually diff- so therefore it's difficult to serve by public transport. But getting around by your car is fine. If you, if you do more transport, it's not going to really solve the problem the Northeast faces. It faces its skills. That's the big issue. Now, then you get this element, again, of agglomeration, like you say, and say, well, actually, is that then about bringing the knowledge economy to a to a smaller place in the Northeast or, or to Wakefield and Yorkshire's instance? Well, actually, no, it, it can't just be about that because then you've got issues around, well, where do these high-skilled jobs want to go? And especially the knowledge ones, they're looking for a big city. Because it's not just about access to workers, it's about access to lots of workers and lots of high-skilled workers. And that's where the real challenge is, is the underperformance of Manchester in particular, and to a certain extent Leeds, and that's what needs to be turned around. So can the government help by moving more and more jobs from public sector workers, but also by pushing up public sector wages, which I know, you know, is politically... Well, that's become a big thing. Should public sector wages be at the same level if they are working in Leeds or Manchester? And and they should be, surely, because if you've got... And, and, you know, and they should be higher, because if you've got uh, more public sector workers earning more then they are pushing more money into the economy they're going out and they are spending and that is going to help new businesses come alongside to to use that wealth to you know so they can be spent on those services and then other companies would be driven there as well because you've got more spending power in those communities could you have a sort of like a, a public sector led recovery in the north i think that we've been trying to do that for about 30 or 40 years if you look at the the expansion of the state in uh, in a lot of places across the north, um, the growth in jobs of that of that part of the economy has been huge. And, and yet, what, we've been trying to squeeze wages at the same time, though, haven't we? Well, certainly not through, say, the, the 1990s and early 2000s, where a lot of this was was going on as well. I think the the, the public sector stuff is a bit of a red herring, and, and this has been very much encouraged by Theresa May's government and then by Boris Johnson's government, where it's like, well, what levers can we pull? Ah, no, we can we can actually physically we can't move private sector jobs we can move public sector jobs so we're going to do that but the really yeah, they've said the bank of england and the, and the treasury and various the departments home office moving north we've seen that leeds manchester elsewhere indeed but the real issue is not you know say it's not about can we move a couple of thousand max of public sector jobs but can we actually get the conditions right that will attract in many tens of thousands of private sector jobs now you know, moving some public sector jobs will be, you know, have a positive on some places. I mean, we looked at the impact that moving the BBC to Salford had, had on Greater Manchester's economy, not a fully public sector organisation, but certainly a quasi-public sector organisation. We found the effects were positive, 
Well, they were tiny, you know, and minuscule compared to the size of the ongoing challenge that Manchester faces. Now, that, again, has to be about how do you try and get skills right? You know, so if you're a high-skilled business looking to stick your pin somewhere on the map of the country, you're going to do that way and get the skilled workers you require. Now, the issue for Manchester is that it doesn't offer those skilled workers to the extent that is required. The same for Liverpool, the same for Sheffield. And that's well, what needs to but that's a long-term growing thing. I mean, if you put the, the workers through the, 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 the upskilling now, we're talking about the actual effect being three, four, five years down the line, aren't we? I mean, or more, probably. Yeah, those, and those, those skills don't have to be acquired locally, though, do they? So you, it's just you've got to have the, the jobs there, the skilled jobs there. So, I mean, you could have people from the south moving north, for example, uh, or you could have people from the north who've been educated in the south, then they go back home. I mean, you don't have to be the skills don't have to be acquired right on your doorstep because it, we're not in a huge country. But surely it's the it's the combination of skills somewhere in the UK and the jobs locally in towns that you know that look as though they are pleasant places to live. So as you say, it can't just be about getting the uh, getting the skills right because you then you need the jobs and you've got this then negative loop. It's probably going to be a, a sort of step by step, you know, little sort of improvement in each of both that will again will require a, a long term solution. So that's when we're trying to measure leveling up. We shouldn't be measuring it, you know, on the last on the last quarter's GDP figures or you know what's happened over the last year. But it is going to be thirty or forty years down the line. What change are we seeing now? The issue about you know just saying should we put jobs in a place and then we'll, then people will come in would be that if you're a private sector company, you're not going to take the punt on that. So you're, you're thinking, well, am I going to go to Milton Keynes or am I going to go to Reading or am I going to go to London or am I going to go to Warrington? And if the skills aren't there, you're going to choose the former in the greater southeast. Now, Manchester is an interesting case on this because if you look at what's happened there, you know, since the, the mid-90s, especially within its city centre, you have seen an increasing number of high-paid private sector jobs moving in there. Um, but that's probably being done at the same time as you've seen an expansion in, uh, in education, higher education in Manchester. Um, my suspicion is that, although we haven't got the data, my suspicion is that Manchester then has got a little bit better at retaining the graduates that it, it trains itself and attracting in graduates elsewhere. But these things happen in increments that you have some graduates who want to stay and there's some jobs there. Then all of a sudden, because there's a bit of a graduate workforce there, some more businesses come in and then some more bas- uh, some more graduates decide, decide to so stay. So that, that, that's, like that's like a growth poll type approach, isn't it? Let's, let's put money into into town. So we let's, let's uh, uh, bump up the education levels. Let's Let's, uh, let's clean up the town centre. Let's uh, let's let's make it a pleasant environment so that uh, so that growth happens. And that was, I, I remember uh, studying growth polls back in the Maggie Thatcher era, like Newcastle, for example. I mean, the t- town I suspect you're quite familiar with was one of them. And I was uh, the, the downside of it was that I lived in in Teesside, which was uh, what 25 miles down the road, and all, every, all the businesses were moved were sucked into the the vacuum of, of Newcastle. So there are pros and cons. But this idea of well, let's take a few strategic places where we can put money in and help help the economy grow does that work i think it's the it's the best bet approach that we've got so you know as much as it pains me to be a, a macam and, and sunderland born and bred you know, in the northeast one of the big challenges that that area faces is that newcastle is nowhere near where it should be in terms of its potential you know it should be um it should be much more strongly performing, have many, many thousands of more of not just private sector jobs, but high skilled private sector jobs, which then um, makes those jobs available, not only to the people who live in Newcastle, but actually across the, the wider northeast too. It, Sunderland could be playing a bigger role. Middlesbrough could be playing a bigger role too. But, you know, Newcastle is the big challenge there. Exactly the same in the northwest. You know, the issue is not that you've got a number of smaller towns that are underperforming. Actually, the issue is that Manchester is underperforming. Now, 
Manchester is a big place. So you take that underperformance and multiply it by the, something of the size of Manchester. And that's not just having local economic impact or regional economic impact. It's having a national economic impact. And we estimate that you know, Manchester is £15 billion smaller uh, each year than what it should be, which is then starts to have impact on some of those figures that the Treasury should but, be concerned about. But, Paul, what if what if the government, you know, you take your, your, your national com- company that might be going to Warrington or Sunderland or, or wherever, and the government says, look, we will fund... We will, we will give you tax breaks. We will uh, provide you with all kinds of advantages if you go and set up in these government places. Now, OK, you know, the skills gap is there, but you can bring the skilled people there. You can do up the place, make it look reasonably pleasant with more government money, perhaps. And you can offer tax breaks and all kinds of things. That surely is the best operative mechan- ma- um, machination to get these companies into these places. So, uh, so we've tried that. And I've got one of my favourite examples, and it allows me to talk about Sunderland again, which I always seem to manage to bring conversations <laughs> Yeah, we noticed that. We noticed that, yeah. <laughs> Is to look at what's happened with Nissan. So in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher did that. You know, big issues around unemployment because those traditional industries of shipbuilding and coal mining had closed down. And uh, over 30 years later, Nissan is still there. It's created many thousands of jobs. It's got a supply chain around it. And on the face of it, that looks um, looks very good. Now, I, I sort of caveat all this by saying if Nissan hadn't gone there, you know, where where would the city be? Undoubtedly in a worse position. But even with that Nissan intervention, it's worth noting that we that Sunderland is still very much part of the levelling up conversation now, more than 30 years on, which tells us that there must be something there about where that type of policy hasn't worked. Now, if you look at where Nissan places its jobs, you know, we think of Nissan and we think of Sunderland and the 7,000 jobs that are there. But if you look at the design jobs... Um, they're in uh, they're in Paddington in London. If you look at the engineering jobs, they're in Cranfield in Oxfordshire. And what we're then seeing is that Nissan actually split out its activities. So it's low-skilled, more routinized type work. It put further north where you know land is cheap, uh, workers are cheaper. You know, it's very much about how can we sort of crunch this routinized job, this uh, routinized function out, you know, cars rolling off the production line. But the knowledge element of what's going on isn't going on in Sunderland, it's going on in the Great Southeast. But why, why is, is that? that? Why, why is that happening? Because you'd imagine with a company like Nissan, okay, as you say, you've got the design in one place, you've got some, some of the high-skilled jobs elsewhere. But nonetheless, you need a support structure for something like Nissan. But small the big executives have to live there. There have to be nice restaurants. There have to be nice places to go. Fast yeah. train. Fast train, well, isn't it's it? Not just, it's, not it's easy to get down to London. That's the thing. But if you put money into uh, education, maybe you took what's there and said, well, okay, uh, let's let's set up a uh, you know a Sunderland University of design or something or a, a, a automotive well, you've, design. You've got Sunderland University, which is actually very good and done stuff. You've got Newcastle University just up the road. Right. You know, you've got those centres already. Get a focus on on relevant courses that would help to to grow that industry. I mean, then again, that's sort of like the growth pole idea, isn't it? You know, let's take what we've got and build on it. Uh, then you might see that some of those jobs are are, are created locally, and they might move up to the uh, up to the northeast. But does that work? I mean, what, Paul, what you're saying suggests it doesn't. That, that yeah, still doesn't work. Exactly. I mean, th- this is the thing: is that you. Nissan, that's even Nissan, which is synonymous with Sunderland, didn't put its high skill jobs there. And so we need to understand why that was the case and then try and, and go from there from a policy perspective. Now, the issue, it seems, is that it's not just about um, having access to lots of skilled workers where there is a big issue there and that needs to be dealt with. But since the network that these skilled workers then sit within, so it's not just they go and work for Nissan and don't talk to anybody else, but actually there's probably some interaction with other types of similar firms. There's even a, you know, a movement of those workers between those different firms that if all of a sudden, say, Nissan started to offer some uh, design jobs, say, in, out of its Sunderland plant, a worker might think, well, that's great because that job is there. 
for the first step. But where do you go after? You know, what's your next move in terms of the jobs that you're then going to go on to do? And there's an issue then there about, you know, uh, therefore bringing these these sort of plants in like manna from heaven and having them sort of on their own doesn't attract in this uh, this other sort of so what you need fired. what you need is I mean go back an agglomeration of uh, big companies Precisely. in that area that they Precisely. can move within that area and and that's where you know, the big city element becomes very important because they're the ones that are best able to sustain that and the issue that the UK faces is that it's bigger cities like Manchester like Glasgow like Birmingham to a lesser extent like Liverpool and like Newcastle are not playing the roles that they should be, given that the you know the theory of agglomeration and the practice of agglomeration when we look at you know other Western European countries or look at the USA is that these big places do become more productive as they get larger. They do offer these so-called agglomeration benefits of access to lots of workers, access to other similar businesses, have this face-to-face interaction and share information and ideas. And because that doesn't happen in the UK, we do very much find ourselves having this leveling up problem, and that's where we need to uh, we need to focus on primarily to try and fix. So. Uh- uh, are we then saying that the northeast of England becomes the automotive equivalent of, of, of Silicon Valley? That you know, if you, it's a no-brainer if you want to set up a car plant and do research and uh, and the development of, of, of new models as we move towards electric cars, then uh, it should be a no-brainer that you should set that up in the northeast. How do we do that? What do, what do, what does the government have to do? Well, I think it's broader than that. I think it, the the issue for a place like Sunderland has gone from being hugely reliant on shipbuilding and mining to industries to then being hugely reliant on call centres and, and car manufacture. The issue is that it hasn't got this broad base of knowledge-based industries um, that that as once it starts to decline, you've got these new industries growing up, you know, replacing the jobs lost in those declining industries almost organically. Now, for me, that comes back to um, a focus on on bigger places in particular. Um, about the places that actually can sustain this and trying to deal with their serial underperformance. But then all that is underpinned by skills policy. Now, what you might then find is that you know you can invest in skills everywhere. Now, people might not go in and, and actually apply those skills in the places where they learn them. But if you're at least giving people those skills and then improving the, the size of the skilled labour market, you're then changing the incentives that private sector businesses face when they do then come to stick that pin in the map. Now, it doesn't matter then whether you're an advanced manufacturing company or a software company or or a, a consultancy or whatever it is, you know, having a large base of, of skilled workers is going to be very attractive to you. And then you start to attract these uh, these types of businesses in. In the way, in fairness, that Manchester City Centre has started to do, Birmingham City Centre has started to do, Leeds has got a reasonable track record at it, but they're not doing it in the sufficient in the numbers required in order to turn these places around. Paul, let me ask a difficult question, which I think may be underlined something. Something's not always easy to talk about, which is class in Britain. There's a sense that if you aspire to be middle class, maybe through education or whatever, you You're leave. You're not going to go to Sunderland. You, leave, well, you, you may start there, but you leave. You go elsewhere. That's almost part of the thing. And it, it's partly, obviously, to make money. But there is a sense of being with... And you end up in Surrey. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> but isn't isn't that uh, you know? We, we always, it's hard to talk about Britain without talking about the class issue, and maybe that is at the root of a lot of the problem here. When you said you were going to ask me a hard question, there, well, I just thought you've asked me lots of hard ones already. But that is a, <laughs> that is a much harder question. <laughs> um, yeah, what, it's a PR. What, it's a PR job, isn't it? It's selling yeah, the north. I think it's so. Um, so if if image and branding is is a is a problem, then we should be moving to to address that. But I think what underpins a lot of that is that there, there aren't the economic opportunities available uh, in sufficient numbers in order to attract or retain those types of people. And I don't think that you know 
go to Sunderland and walk along the, the beach, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's the same sort of a little bit further north if you go to Timemouth, for example. And indeed, there is a cluster of, of middle-class people who do live in, in Timemouth, uh, around the mouth of the time. Um but and you're going to get you're going to get a lot more for your money as well. I mean the I mean that, that was actually sort of my next question was going to be about transport links. And uh, on this podcast, I've I've, been, I've demonstrated. I'm, I'm the only person on the, in the country I think who actually thinks HS2 is a good idea because the idea of high speed links with regular trains, if they're all going fast, then you can run them every five minutes if you wanted to. So you get lots of capacity. I think that's the key thing to go between uh, the south and the north. Then you'd have people going. I can work up north. I can. Uh, it's not going to cost me an arm and a leg to get down to see my relatives in the south, or vice versa. Uh, it becomes a, a, a much more tenable proposition to live in the north. And you say, and I get a bigger house as well. You know. So thank God these jobs are moving up here. And I, I just wonder how much of that would be uh, the result of faster rail links. You know, if HS2 went all the way up to Newcastle, just how many people would actually be saying, well, you know, and if you could do it quickly and it didn't cost too much, people would be saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take a job up north because. Uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to, my money is going to go that much further. Well, there, there are two things with that. I think that the key word there is uh, if you can do it cheaply. And mm. if we're talking about high-speed rail, you're not going to get a cheap train ticket, uh, unfortunately. You're going to have to pay a premium in order to get uh, access to that. But but I think that there are merits in discussions. Well, we should we should make we should make that the case. I mean, and, well, and if, the, if the if the if it's a regular service, if there's that much more capacity, then there's no reason why it should but be. But that's expensive. also a long way in the future. Don't forget how yeah. long yeah, these yeah. things take to build. Well, I mean, this is so we, yeah, we're not necessarily talking about something that's going to be fixed next week. I no, mean, we're, no, but, we're talking about something which we've been saying has been taking ninety years and is yes. still not fixed. Well, exactly, and that's the problem. It's kicked into the long, the very, very long grass. Mm, and so, I'm thinking making the country smaller is perhaps part of it. Mm. Well, I think what probably where we would focus the attention on is to actually try and make um, uh, areas around cities smaller. So the issue is not for us is not necessarily you know quick rail lines from the centre of one place to the centre of another, but actually it's under underdeveloped local transport where you've got lots of lines, be it bus, tram, or or train, running from that that hinterland around cities. Or indeed, the suburbs. But you said most people are driving. You said most people are driving there. Car transport, you know, transport is not the issue in the in the north. People are able to get around by car. It's less well, faster well, roads, perhaps. Yes, quite exactly. And this is the you know so. You could, because you make the same argument for for quicker train links between um, between places. That actually, there are some pretty good motorways that are there already. Now, if you if you then look at a place like Manchester and you think about, well, actually, its growth has been in its city centre in particular in recent years, and um, we should be trying to have more of that. We should be doubling the size of Manchester city centre and the way that you know London, central London, has seen huge growth over the last thirty years with all the knowledge jobs that are there. If you do manage to do that in Manchester all of a sudden trying to get in by private transport becomes very difficult. So then public transport starts to become important because you can't, you, there's just a small space which you physically can't shove more and more cars. You're going to have huge tailbacks. And indeed, that's why I met so many people in London use public transport. It's not because of the congestion charge, although that helps, but it's actually because the economic geography of London means that it's just easier to get on the bus or get on the tube to get in the centre of London than it is to, to drive your car. We need to see a similar sort of thing in Manchester, or if we see a similar Well, I mean, thing- I was in Manchester last last week, Paul, and actually the, the trams are really good. I mean, I was super seriously impressed. And the city centre, it works. It's not congested. It, and- it it really is impressive. It, I, wonder, I wonder. I wonder whether the situation is changing as well with more people working from home now. Whether and you know, the, the, there's an opportunity here for the north to say, well, if you're going to live anywhere, uh, why not live up here? If you're only, you know, irrespective of where your company is based, it's where you it's where you live and the lifestyle that you have that counts. How you know that's an opportunity, isn't it? Well, uh, so there's a, there's a version of the world where that's true. Uh, 
our view is that that actually is the probability of that happening is pretty small for two reasons. The first is that we're fairly skeptical about um, about the future of work from home. Um, and even if you believe, you know, in the hybrid world of people having to come into the office for a couple of days a week rather than necessarily going back every day of the week, you're still going to have to be relatively tied to where your your office is. So that sort of limits your commute the belt. I think the second is that if that that part that sort of version of the world came to pass, then you're not in in with the greatest respect to the to the places that will be not be affected by this, but you're not going to go to a place that is struggling or left behind. You're going to go to the the Dewsbury's of, of Manchester, the Stockports of Manchester, rather than say the Oldham's of Manchester, because of the uh, the the type of the the the, the, the type of lifestyle that somebody might be able to get there given their income. And so that's not actually dealing with the issues; it's probably just compounding the issues. And, and the people who can work from home tend to be the knowledge based, higher skilled people in the first place. So you're back to the people with the lower skills operating in these places, effectively. Yes, so exactly. If you had a chunk of money then, Paul, if the government was to say, well, look, we, we're going to tackle this. It's been 90 years. Let's get serious about it now. Uh, you let's, know, let's give it to Paul Swinney and, and the Centre for Cities and see what they can do. <laughs> well, what, are we gonna, what are you going to do for Sunderland? Come, come on. People of Sunderland are listening in now, Paul. They want to know how you're going to fix their problems. So I would, uh, I would focus on skills, but everything else. I'll put more money into uh, education at all levels. Uh, primary, secondary, maybe preschool as well, as well as um, uh, further education and, and higher education. And, and you've got to get that bit right first. Then I would have a, a focus on uh, on improving the, the, the how attractive a city centre is as a place to do business, which we're talking about Sunderland and Fairness. The council have done some great work around that in, in recent years. It needs to keep on going. If we're talking about other places, it's about you know, continuing the great work that's happened in Manchester since the 90s, you know, trying to make it more and more attractive to to invest in that city centre. Um, I mean, then I would do something around uh, local transport, which is then you've got get the skills right, make get sort of the attractive business locations and how are you going to connect those people to those jobs? And that's very much about transport within cities. Now, the first step on that is around bus franchising. So that means giving similar powers that London has had for, for many decades over buses uh, to other parts of the country. Manchester's about to get those other places working that um uh, working that up, and then it's then thinking about well, where appropriate, what do you do about trams? What do you do about about trains? What do you do about underground? Now uh, that isn't going to be appropriate for everywhere, but in a place like Manchester, which has done that transport investment, like you say, Roger, you know, it's done it to a great extent. There's a lot of work still to do. How do you continue to provide that public transport that people from Cheshire and people from Lancashire can commute into Manchester within reasonable time as Manchester City Centre continues continues to get bigger? In the case of Sunderland, what are you doing around buses to make sure that you know people who might well want to commute into the city centre, the jobs you're trying to create, are then able to do that on a reliable basis? And the aim of all of that would be for all those people who are educated in the north to actually say, right, I've done my education now. I'm going to head. I'm, I'm going to go to the station and get on that train, pack my bags, and, no, and they live will there stay. for the rest of the- they, no, he's saying the, the, the stay in a nice place. they stay. They yeah, stay in the They north. will go to a place where there's an agglomeration of the things they like. That's really what they're makes people the, stay they're there. Staying for the agglomeration. I mean, that would be the aim, though, wouldn't it? It would be to it would be to say yes. There's no need to move south, and then hopefully the you know it'll start to move the, the other money way. Money will well. be attracted. It, it it would be that, but I think um, so. I totally agree with that, but I, and, I, and I don't think you are saying this. But the policy can't be just oh well. Or the goal of the policy can't just be, oh, suppose so people don't have to move anymore, so that's a nice thing to do. I think the goal of the policy has to be that. You know, so then Manchester is finally punching its weight, which then means that it's making at least 50, £15 billion pounds more contribution to the national economy than is currently the case. That then people don't have to move to get access to those jobs, I think, is, is a nice to have extra. 
but it's sort of it's bought off the back of this this economic problem that we have. We need to get this right from a national economic problem as well as a as looking at just as being an issue about moving yeah, jobs, contributing around. more to the so, general so economy. Can, so can Newcastle become another Manchester? Can Leeds become another Manchester? Could and Sunderland become a new Manchester? Could, yeah, and here's a, here's a, here's the real test. Could so, Hull could Hull <laughs> become another Manchester? So there'll always I think there'll always be a hierarchy of cities. I think the bigger ones. In principle, the bigger ones should always perform better than some of the smaller ones. Can Hull be a better version of itself? Absolutely. You know, when we should be sort of making interventions to make that happen. You know, will Hull be more successful than, say, a Leeds in 20 years' time? Well, I think that that is probably unlikely. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying yeah. to make Hull a better version of itself. But if we are going to have a you know a stronger national economy and, and not be talking about levelling up in 20 or 30 years' time, we are going to need Leeds in particular, Manchester in particular, Newcastle in particular, to be making a bigger contribution than the, what they are. And yeah. hopefully then, in terms of those interventions, we'll see a better Sunderland and a better Hull as well. Well, Newcastle wants the Eurovision Song Contest. Maybe that will help uh, along <laughs> the way. Final question. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that works out for them. So, um, final question then. How optimistic are you that we will make some headway oh well I think we can read a lot into that <laughs> yeah I mean uh, I'm not very optimistic I'm just going to be upfront about it the just because um, of lack of money lack of government money lack, lack of, of will. strategy yeah lack of strategy principally mm. the money falls in behind that but it's lack mm. of strategy you know we've had a white paper which you know went some of the way it was better than what we expected to be it wasn't perfect but was better than we thought but now we've had a long period of inaction after that. We've now got a leadership election where neither candidate has pointed to that white paper once, you know, created within their own government, and has said, we've already got a blueprint for this. My plan now is to go and enact it. Instead, they're coming up with crazy policies, you know, out of left field, saying we're going to do this instead, as if this white paper hadn't even happened. Well, now, I mean, even, the, even that white paper, and it did have some good bits, but it was a bit of a grab bag of ideas as well, wasn't it? Because here's a line from it, you know, it, they got in the whole thing about more police officers, you know, safer streets streets, blah, blah, blah. Control of our immigration system by ending free movement and introducing a new points-based immigration system, giving the UK the freedom to decide who comes to our country based on the skills they have to offer. I mean, how does that help the people of Sunderland or Bradford or Hull, it, really? It, it, it doesn't. I absolutely agree. But if you pick out the bits that were, and some of that's just political rhetoric that's yeah. been shoved into a white paper that's been said, a leveling up post. white paper that's been said in other areas. Yeah. If you pick out some of the good bits around the focus on cities, around some of the money for uh, for for transport within cities, around um, uh, some of the things on, you know, setting goals to, to 2030, on some of the things around devolution in particular. Those things that you can pick out, actually, they've got the bones there of something pretty interesting. The issue is that, you know, it wasn't perfect, you know, far from perfect, but we shouldn't let perfect be at least be the, the enemy of the good. And if it took them two and a half years to create this white paper, and we're less than, or we're sort of less than, is it less than two years to the next election? If we just rip it up and start all again, you're just going to get absolutely nowhere. And there so is we'll, a big problem of longevity and all this. People not having the long, you know, if, if politicians think about the next election, they really are not going to concentrate on 20, well, 30 years. Well, those six forms of capital, I thought, actually were good, a good way of setting the scene, weren't they? Because that's, you know, you, you've got to do it all. Good words, but I just don't, yeah, I'm with Paul, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I can't see it. I can't see the political will for it to happen. That's the sad part. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> there's an opportunity for another government there here is, to try and fix this problem. Anyway, good to talk. Paul, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating uh, insights there. Uh, Paul 
Swinney there from the Centre for Cities being with us here on the Wine Cove. Do you know, last time I was up north, yeah. and I, I should go more often, I mean, yes. my mum lives up north. The last You've time been I north was, of Farnham a couple last, of times. Yeah, I've been north of Farnham. That's about as far as it goes. Hey, we shouldn't give away too much personal no, no, information on this true. podcast. Um, but uh, I was I visited a friend in Thirsk in North Yorkshire. It's right. beautiful. Yes. And everyone there Absolutely. seems to have, you know, quite nice houses. I mean, sure, there's people uh, who are struggling as well. Of course there are. But there are people who are, you know, making, uh, you know, innovative businesses mm. there. Mm. So, but that's not cities. That's no. that's a small town, and Thursk I think is a bit unusual. But it's a whole it's, ecosystem, it's a that whole mm. area, and and one feeds into the other. People we're talking about Manchester. People move going into Manchester, coming out of Manchester, Newcastle, also Sunderland, of course. Uh, which Paul was talking about very different areas. It's not just one uh, agglomeration, if you like, of of difficulties up there. And the fact is that without the kind of investment universally. Mm. That's nearly not going to, it's not going to work says, as an area. It's got to be strategy as well, hasn't it? it has, it's not just long not just term, money. and that's the problem. Hey, which brings us on to another strategy that doesn't seem to be working: uh, trying to save the planet. We're well, doing, no, not just trying to save the north of England. We're also trying to save the planet as yes, well, and we're yes. not doing well on either of these no, things. Do you remember the climate conference in Glasgow not that long back? Mm. And lots of promises about net zero. That under the problem of uh, energy supply and energy prices, a lot of those promises seem to be really going a long way onto the back burner. Net zero. You remember all those commitments, different dates when net zero would come in in different forms. How valid are they going to be now? Is it just another case of here's just another slogan mm. and uh, we haven't really worked out the strategy yet? And we're well, going we we to make it, make it up as we go along, but then, yeah. and then we suddenly realise, that, oh, it's too late. We probably th- should have thought of this a bit earlier. Well, you know, talk about reopening nuclear power stations, which obviously doesn't have the carbon effect, but certainly has all kinds of other issues. But they're also the Germans talking about opening up their coal-fired power stations again, all kinds of things like this kicking in. Because mm. people just don't have the energy to be able to do this in the timescale that's been promised. So what we're going to talk about on next week's Y-Curve is exactly that. What is the validity now? What is the possibility mm. of these net zero promises being fulfilled? Yeah, let's give it a, a Paul Swinney pause to that one. Mm. I don't think it looks good. (laughs) (laughs) Horses are a problem, aren't they? (laughs) We'll do that next time. Thanks. Bye. The Y Curve.